This is a crowd podcast. We didn't start the fire. The only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. Birth Control. Ho Chi Minh. Richard Nixon back again. Moonshot. Woodstock. Watergate. Punk Rock. Begin. Reagan. Palestine. Terror on the airline. Ayatollahs in Iran. Russians in Afghanistan. Wheel of Fortune. Sally Ride. Katie, let's climb on board and ride with Sally today. To the moon. Did she go to the moon? No. Orbit. Orbit. That's good enough for me. Hello and welcome to episode 111 of We Didn't Start the Fire, a song that's become a podcast that's a history lesson about all the biggest, strangest and most beautiful stories that shaped our world. Billy Joel drew our crazy route map. We just follow wherever it goes. Cold War, hot movie stars, big dogs, dirty dogs, tragedies and triumphs. I'm Tom Fordyce. I'm Katie Puckrick. Katie's school is out and Billy is once again in. Billy is so in and I'll tell you who else is in. The topic, the subject, the heroine of today's episode, Sally Ride. Who was Sally Ride? Well... I'll tell you, in 1983, she became the first American woman and the third woman overall that we know of to fly in space. I think at the time it struck me that we were lagging because, of course, there were two Soviet cosmonauts who'd managed this feat, the first in 1963, the second in 82. So so we were laggardly, I think, Tom. There was some lag in there, Katie. Um, was the space shuttle a huge part of growing up in America? Because even in the UK, we were conscious this was a big deal. You know, as an American, you just assume that we're living in God's country and whatever <laughs> we do is the best and we're superior and we're better than everybody else in the world. So you don't really give it that much thought. You're like, yeah, that's kind of what we do. Of course, times have changed. I don't hold that opinion any longer. (laughs) Well, Katie, I have a a slightly strange memory of the space shuttle. And I've had to check this actually happened because it feels slightly like a childhood dream. But in June 1983, the space shuttle Enterprise was brought to the UK and landed at what at the time was a very small airport, Stansted Airport, which is just over the road from where I grew up. So I've got a memory of standing in the school playground and seeing the space shuttle <gasps> on the back of a 747, which was even more mind-blowing, in the, flying through the sky in the distance, landing whatever it is, five miles further on. And then the next morning, we went out to the boundary to see this actual thing with our own eyes. And it was perched on top of this 747. And it was the most extraordinary thing I'd ever seen. Incredible. Perched on top of this. I mean, how much bigger than the airplane was it? Or was it, was it sm- much smaller. Much smaller? Yeah. Oh, I'm just like, uh, after talking to our producer, Fionn, a little bit earlier about her being subjected to seeing pigeons mating in the park, I sort of have an idea that maybe this is a little bit of a like a space age version of it. Would it would be one very small pigeon with a very, very big pigeon. <laughs> okay. Well, I can see that we're leading ourselves far, far away from the topic at hand, which is, in fact, Sally Ride. And so that means it is time to bring in our guest. She is an author who mainly writes about women who push boundaries and made a difference. Her books include Sally Ride, Life on a Mission, and she is Sue Macy. Welcome. Thank you very much. Glad to land in your on your show. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you. So, first of all, this doesn't have anything to do with anything other than I love Sally Ride's name. It's nominative <laughs> determinism. I know. I know. She she was born to be an astronaut or a pilot or something like that. And it seems almost too good to be true. 
And, and you know, Wilson Pickett's song, which had the verse, Ride Sally Ride. Yeah, Mustang which, Sally. Yeah, Mustang Sally. It was written about 20 years before she ever flew into space. But everything was perfect for her to be an astronaut. Yeah. So she was born in the 50s? Uh, yes, 1951 in, in Encino, California, which was a pretty wealthy suburb. I actually just was there last summer, and I was surprised at how well-heeled it seemed. Oh, it's very well-heeled. I can just say that I've been there a few times, once to interview the soul legend Barry White. <gasps> oh, wow. So it is quite well-heeled. So Sally grew up outside Los Angeles, and she was a gifted kid, a talented tennis player. I mean, it's not like she started off as some kind of like science experiment brain box. I mean, she was out there in the world being a young athlete. She was a young athlete, but she, but her parents got her a subscription to Scientific American magazine when she before she was a teenager. Oh. I had trouble understanding some articles in in Scientific American. So so she was a brainiac, but she was also an athlete, a tomboy. She loved baseball. And a lot of girls in those days who loved baseball, like Billie Jean King, were sort of eased into a sport that their parents thought was more appropriate for women, which was tennis, because back then you did have Wimbledon and the U.S. Nationals, and there was an established women's sports channel for tennis players, but it wasn't appropriate for girls playing baseball back then. It feels, Sue, like from the very start, she is a woman in a man's world, because when she gets goes to UCLA, she is the only woman majoring in physics. There were very few women in science in those days. She just followed her her muse, I guess. She loved she loved science. She also started taking courses in Shakespeare when she was at Stanford. So she had a dual major of physics and Shakespeare. It's like she's sort of uh, rocketing herself into the future and into the past at the same time. (laughs) That's great. Yeah. She felt like Shakespeare was her relief. She needed something that didn't challenge her in the same way that all the math and science of physics did. That's so funny. That's like her comfort food. I'm interested (laughs) in the fact that she went to a private school before she went to university. She was there on a tennis scholarship. How the heck did she make the transition to ask Astrophysics. You know, she always liked science. There was an article uh, about her playing tennis when she was in college, and it started with the sentence, Sally Ride may not be the first female astronaut, but, and that was decades before she became the first female astronaut. So there was always an indication that she was interested in, in science, but She loved sports. She loved competing. She was a ranked tennis player in college. Then she just gave it up. Her mother said that she thought that Sally didn't like that the ball didn't always go where she wanted it to go. Like she wanted control and she wasn't feeling that she had it. So she decided she was not going to be a full-time tennis player. And back then it was hard to make a living doing that. Right. Uh, It was still mostly an amateur sport. Well, that really gives you an insight into Uh, the kind of character that she had that gave her the right stuff to be the first female astronaut. If she can't completely control a situation and she's that competitive, it seems like those are early indicators that she's going to be achieving at a high level. 
Yes, uh, she was. Uh, she did like to control her circumstances, but she did from sports. She got to learn how to be a team player, how to bounce back from defeat, which is one of the great things about sports. Everybody loses sometime. That made her a very appealing candidate as an astronaut. I also like the fact that she became friendly and indeed was mentored by Billie Jean King, the legendary yes. Billie Jean King, and was apparently present at the famous Battle of the Sexes. Have you heard about the Battle of the Sexes? Yeah, fill, fill me in with Bobby... Bobby Riggs. Bobby Riggs, because yes. he reckoned that he could just beat any woman, like no woman was would be as good as a man. Yeah, yeah. and Billie Jean King taught him a very public lesson. Yeah, and that was... It became so uh, important as a milestone in women's sports because she stood up to him and she stood up to the pressure more than his game, which was not as fast as hers. And it, it was a spectacle. It was played in the Houston Astrodome, which was a baseball stadium. And she was brought in on a... Uh, stretcher held by Greek men dressed oh, like as Cleo- Greek gods. Cleopatra yeah, like style. Cleopatra. Yeah, and, and he came in with a big sugar daddy because he was supposed to be some kind of sexist uh Oh, sugar daddy, idiot. the the the, uh, the sweet, the, the caramel yeah, the lollipop. Sweet, the, right, right. Yeah. He had a big lollipop and he was going to lick <laughs> lick her, I guess. I <laughs> love it. Yeah. And this story, Sue, is so fantastic. I mean, I think Billy missed a trick, not name-checking this uh, battle of the sexes situation. So she actually was mentored by Billie Jean King, so she was no stranger to being around champions. Being around champions and also I think in that, in that era where Billie Jean King is having her abilities denigrated by a male tennis player she's a woman in a in a world that isn't quite ready for women at that stage as well Sue. Yeah well Sally she was born at the right time in a way because in the early 70s laws passed in the United States like Title IX which which insisted that Federal funds that went to schools had to be applied equally to men and women. So that opened up opportunities in education, in sports. There were no uh, scholarships for girls at all in college sports before 1972. And suddenly schools had to offer opportunities for girls to compete. It also supported girls in science. And NASA was developing this new line of space shuttles that would allow people who weren't pilots to go up in space because they were large enough to allow mission specialists. Previously, you had to be a jet test pilot to become an astronaut, and there were no women jet test pilots. So no matter how good they were and how many tests they passed, they could not go into space. Starting in the late 70s, NASA started recruiting women, minorities, people who had been kept out of the space program. Up until that time, there was only one black man who flew into space. The new class that Sally Ride was part of, which was 35 people, included six women, three black men, and one Asian man. So it was suddenly a different ballgame. And when NASA were casting their net a little wider for a more interesting and diverse cast of characters, I understand that they put ads in the 
university newspapers? Yes. Uh, Sally saw a, an ad in the Stanford Daily newspaper saying that uh, NASA was looking for candidates. They also used Nichelle Nichols, who played Uhuru, Uhuru I never can say that name, uh, who was a black scientist on Star Trek. They hired the actress to go around the country publicizing this new effort to get different types of astronauts. And she was very dedicated to that in her life uh, as far as encouraging girls and non-white men to go into science. So anyway, they, they did cast the net. Sally saw the ad. She and 7,999 other people <laughs> applied. I think there were about 1,600 women who applied and ultimately 35 of the people were accepted, including Sally. And when she had to be put through the ringer in terms of being deemed acceptable as a candidate, what did she have to perform tasks or was it to do with having a great personality? What was involved? <laughs> she was interviewed by two psychiatrists. One was, she said there was a good psychiatrist, bad psychiatrist, like good cop Badcock. The first one was, you know, just wanted to talk about her upbringing in, in very nice, touchy-feely ways. And she said the other guy was was the mean one. And, you know, he was more, it was more of an assault on her. Uh, but she, she surpassed that. She had done the paperwork earlier as far as showing the knowledge to start becoming an astronaut. But she was about to get her PhD in astrophysics. So she was pretty much the perfect candidate as far as the, the learning. She knew the science. She had been an athlete, so she was physically fit. I didn't realize there's a, there's a height requirement. I think you have to be between five feet tall and six feet two. So she fit all the requirements and she, she was very reserved. She was a good person to have in front of the cameras because she was probably not going to buckle under the pressure. I think they figured that out. I like Sue as well that the fact that she embraces this new role she's going into to the extent that she gets into flying, she part owns her own plane and at weekends in her downtime she takes to the skies and has a little poodle around. Well, they were required to learn how to fly because sometimes if the astronauts weren't on a particular mission, they would be on the ground when the shuttle was landing and accompany the shuttle as pilots in airplanes to make sure that the exterior of the shuttle is okay, to, to measure the different readings for landing and speed and everything. So you really did need to be a pilot. And she really, she took to it. She really enjoyed flying. And I'm not surprised at all that she enjoyed flying. Was there a sense of danger and trepidation because at this point there has been no disasters in the space shuttle program tragically there would be two after sally's time but this is space exploration it's inherently dangerous it is and there hadn't been any accidents with the shuttle but there had been i think it was apollo one which burned up on the tarmac in the 60s my favorite astronaut <laughs> was killed in that August Grissom when I was a little girl growing up and I listened to the space launches on, on my transistor radio on the way to school. I used to love Gus Grissom for some reason. He was he was my ideal astronaut. So so there had been a tragedy. And I interviewed a friend of mine who worked for Sally 
after she was an astronaut, she had a website called space.com that talked about space for the lay person. And my friend Nancy uh, worked for her. And I said, could you, in a phrase, explain Sally Ride to me? And she said she lived a mission-driven life. You know, she had a mission. And, and later, I also got to interview Catherine Sullivan, who was one of the other six women astronauts chosen at the time for the shuttle. And I got that message so clearly from her. Catherine wanted to study oceanography. So after being an astronaut, she joined the Coast Guard. So these people had a mission and they went forward. And so Sally was like that. And she wasn't going to let the danger get in the way of her dreams, I think. <laughs> This is an advertisement from BetterHelp Therapy Online. Hello Fire listeners, it's Tom here. I hope you're enjoying the series. I wanted to tell you about BetterHelp. We all carry around different stresses in life, big and small. A lot of the people we talk about in this series definitely did. And as we know, if we keep those stresses bottled up, it can impact us negatively. That's where therapy can be great. Therapy isn't just for people who've experienced major trauma. It can help you understand the way that your brain works and why you feel a particular way. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's all online, designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Fire listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com WDSTF, as in, we didn't start the fire. So, that is betterhelp.com WDSTF. Eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious ready-to-eat meals. Always fresh and never frozen, each meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. I eat flexitarian, so with a weekly menu of 35 options, there's plenty for me to choose from. So, last night I had the Moroccan-style almond-crusted salmon. It was absolutely delicious. These are no-fuss, no-mess meals. Factor eliminates the hassle of prepping, cooking or cleaning up. Simply heat and savour the good stuff. With over 60 add-ons like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks and smoothies, there's plenty of options to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. Plus, you can customise your weekly meals and pause or reschedule deliveries to suit your lifestyle. Factor is your solution for fast premium meals without the need for cooking. What are you waiting for? Head to factormeals.com slash WDSTF50 and use the code WDSTF50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code WDSTF50 at factormeals.com slash WDSTF50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. 
What's so impressive about her is, um, as you were mentioning earlier, Tom, the fact that she had a level head and she just kind of grit her teeth and entered into the whole media circus that, of course, her selection as the first woman astronaut drew. You can see her just so not brusquely because she's always civil and she maintains like a, a sort of good humor, but she has to bat back, I guess, like a tennis pro, the tennis pro that she could have been, absurd questions like, do you weep when things go wrong on the job? I mean, I would answer that question just dripping with sarcasm, but she just very lightly sat, sort of laughed and said, oh, I wonder why none of the other astronauts are asked that question. But can you give us a sense of what that whole media circus was like for her? Because it took her away from being an astronaut and doing her job. Right. But it was important because the space program needed support from the American people and, and from Congress, which gives it money. So I think she knew what her job was, but she didn't suffer fools gladly at all. You know, when she heard a question that was ridiculous to her, she would smile. She would say, why don't you ask the male astronauts that? I, when I was reading about her again this weekend, I drew parallels to Jackie Robinson. Because when Jackie Robinson played for the Brooklyn Dodgers, there were people who threw things, who said awful racist things to him, and he he rose above it. The only way to deal with it was to not engage. And I feel like Sally did that in her own way. She would humor people a little bit, but if something was was ridiculous, she would just you know, say, well, I'm not going to answer that question or, you know, try another question, something like that. So she knew she she managed the media. The other thing was that the six women who were in the space program before Sally was named, when the six women were named as part of the space program, each one would do interviews and they would come back and they would discuss what was asked of them and how they answered. So it was a united front of these women not putting up with the bullshit that that people were throwing at them. And I think that the camaraderie was really important to her and it gave her a, a sort of a, a foundation for her own stardom, I guess. Was there resistance and reluctance within NASA to women being appointed as astronauts? It was generational. So the old guard, the ones who were from the early, the Gemini and the Apollo programs, and they had been World War II pilots, you know, they did not understand how women could do this job. But the 35, they called themselves the 35 new guys. They were the ones who were appointed to the astronaut program, you know, with Sally. They understood that they were modern guys and they understood that times were changing and women were you know had the right to be there so as the older guys retired or learned that they had to get with the program because you know the government was requiring equal opportunity for women these days they sort of faded away and so she did get support from her pals in, you know, in the program. One of the things that after her first flight, I don't want to jump ahead, but she said she wanted to be treated exactly the same as all the other astronauts. And when they landed, somebody brought her a bouquet of roses and just her. She said no. She she shook her head and she 
you know, sent them away because she didn't want to be seen as the female astronaut. She wanted to be seen as an astronaut. Katie, you mentioned the, the question about weeping on your job. I mean, we've all wept on our jobs. <laughs> For sure. At, at, at various points. <laughs> Another choice question, Katie, I came across uh, that Sally was asked. Will the flight affect your reproductive organs? Oh. Yeah, which is an interesting one. And then, um, I don't know if this detail is true, Sue, but it's rather startling, that the NASA engineers gave Sally on her first flight, bearing in mind it's a six-day mission, they gave her 100 tampons. Um, I don't know if they thought the pull of the moon was going to be stronger in orbit. <laughs> Who knows? I just, I just love this detail. I want to do an entire like thirty-minute sidebar on this because these are ostensibly educated men who work in the field of science. Who may have wives and mothers and who daughters. May, who may have like had a passing acquaintance with the menstrual cycle, and then they're envisaging like the scene out of The Shining where the elevator doors open and a tsunami of blood just comes gushing down and like imagine what happens to that blood in zero gravity no wonder they were just throwing tampons at her <laughs> yeah i wonder how many condoms they gave the men exactly <laughs> I, i've never seen that i mean 100 would be very ambitious i guess well um, you know you got to ha- you have to have an aspiration they're talking also about developing a space makeup kit. <laughs> yes, a space makeup kit. And, and Johnny Carson, you know, a lot of the comedians of the day joked about Sally Ride. So Johnny Carson said that the shuttle mis- mission was going to be delayed because she had to find a purse to match her, her space suit. So, yeah, right. uh, today that would not <laughs> that would not go over. But back then, they didn't know how to accept this. But ultimately, what Sally was trying to show was there was no gender to being an astronaut. An astronaut is not it's not like being a nun where you had to be a woman. It was <laughs> just a scientific job. <laughs> there are several twists and turns in Sally Ride's life, Sue. In 1982, she marries her fellow NASA trainee, Stephen Hawley. We will subsequently find out that she is a gay woman. What is going on here? Is this her working her way through her sexuality? Is this a response to what a gay woman can do and can't do in the early 80s? I think probably both. Uh, She had had a girlfriend in graduate school. So it's not like she had never had an experience with a woman before. I've never seen anything written by her about this, but it was clear that she palled around with guys. She was one of the guys. You know, she felt very comfortable with men. And Stephen Hawley and, and Sally both loved Star Trek. They loved to barbecue, but didn't cook beyond that. They they had very similar likes, and they were both children of Presbyterian, either ministers or lay people. So their religion, they had their religion in common. And I think they they were really good friends. They decided to live together and they got married. And he, Stephen said later that they really eventually were just roommates. He didn't see that there might be something wrong because they also had very different schedules. When she was training, she was away a lot. She learned to operate the robot arm on the space shuttle, which was made in Canada. So she spent a lot of time in Toronto. He was also an astronaut and he was named to a mission. So there was not 
a lot of time to realize that this might have been a mistake <laughs> and they were companionable. So yeah, she I personally feel like it must have helped with the publicity aspect, you know, to see that she was married. There were a couple of other female astronauts in her program who married men. And I think that it made life a lot easier. This was a time, so 1981, I think, was when Billie Jean King was outed. Her former, quote, assistant, who she had been involved with, decided to sue her for alimony, a palimony, sorry, because there was no marriage. And that just blew the the cover off of her sexuality and also lost her all of her endorsements. So when you see your your mentor, your idol, losing her career, basically, it might tend to move you into a more comfortable situation. And, and that's what that's what happened. So but at the time, Sally reconnected with Tam O'Shaughnessy, who had been on the tennis tour when Sally was playing tennis. And they had known each other from the California tennis scene since she was, I think, 12 years old. They had just been friends. And something else began to develop between, you know, going to Canada and being home. Uh, so Tam lived in, in Atlanta. She was teaching school at the time. And they developed a relationship and that ultimately brought an end to her marriage to Steve. You wonder, Casey, how the NASA engineers would have uh, reacted to that news. Um, <laughs> if they're struggling as it is with the idea of a woman going into space, it would have purely blown their minds. Yes, it would either titillate them beyond them being able to do their jobs or just give them a sense of just being entirely relaxed and feeling like she was truly one of the boys. <laughs> how did that first mission go and how was Sally received when they all touched back down on planet Earth? She was received very well and the media just swarmed around her and she had no excuse. She had to go and do interviews and speeches and travel around the world uh, talking about the shuttle program. And she did not love that part of her job, but she felt very responsible to, to girls. And that became another through line of her life that she wanted to encourage girls, especially girls and minorities to follow her lead and study science and join the astronaut program. And so she did. She enjoyed being one of the handful of women of importance, I guess, as far as the public was concerned. You know, she people wanted to interview her for the rest of her life. She was the first and being the first woman in any area makes you really important. And she was important to me. I was three years younger. And I, when I saw that, I had no desire to go into space. I'm claustrophobic. <laughs> but when you see somebody break out of the mold, it shows everybody that there's more than you thought was possible for your life. And that's why she, so she stood up and she, she did her part until she was named to another mission, which made her very happy because she had to withdraw from the public and, and train again. So, Sue, on the, the second and third space shuttle flights, Sally is a ground-based capsule controller. Can you explain to the uninitiated, which is Katie and I, what on earth a ground-based capsule controller does? 
Yes, they call them Capcoms. And that is the go-between between mission control and the astronauts out in space. So she was the one that communicated what the mission control people wanted the astronauts to know and what they were doing and feeling and seeing. So it was a really important job. And that that's one of the things that I think put her at the head of the class of women that she had done this job. So she had basically walked through the entire mission twice. She was a team player. You know, she would support other people. She didn't have to be the star. And what is her role going to be on her debut flight, her maiden flight? Okay, her main role was that she operated the robot arm, which the robot arm was the device that was used to take things like satellites from the payload bay on the shuttle and throw them out into space. It was a very important part of the mission because these missions not only, they were basically research missions, either for commercial companies. Uh, Her mission had some West German satellites that they were putting out into space or for the government. They were studying climate change. They were studying the impact of spaceflight on the astronauts themselves. So the robot arm would go into the, the payload, get the, the satellite and kind of throw it into space. But it was a massive thing. She spent a long time up in Canada learning how to use it. And it was a really important part of the mission. Sue, I'm wondering if you have any insight into the meeting that she initiated with the cosmonaut Svetlana Savitskaya. She was the second woman to ever fly in space. Do you have any sense of what they discussed? Because they met for six hours. Yes, they, they, uh, well, so the backstory is that after her first uh, mission, she and another astronaut were taken on a world tour and they brought their spouses. So Steve was there too. Among other places, they went to Budapest and Right before that, the Soviets had shot down a Korean Airlines plane that carried a U.S. congressperson. Everybody was was killed. NASA said, you know, we want you to be the, the ambassador of goodwill for our space program, but we don't want any evidence of you kind of cavorting with the Russians because that will look really bad that we're angry at the Russians and we don't want to look differently. So she, Savitskaya was at this party where she, she and her other colleague were, and they sort of surreptitiously said hello, but Sally kept looking over her shoulder to see if there were cameras. And she didn't want to do anything that NASA would be upset about. So she went back to her hotel room and she actually recorded a little audio cassette journal about what had happened. Then she decided, you know, she really wanted to talk to her. So she went to a translator and said, you know, I really would like to talk to her. And they set it up at the home of a Hungarian cosmonaut. And it was a very warm experience. They traded gifts. Uh, I think she was going to give her uh, her t-shirt, her mission t-shirt, and and uh, the Russian gave her a doll and some jewelry was exchanged. And they talked about being pioneers. And it was different. In Russia, the cosmonauts, every bodily function was monitored during a flight. And in, in the U.S., that was not the case. So they compared and contrasted. And, and she said that she felt very 
uh, warm towards her. You know, it was the only time they ever met, but it was amazing to find one of the two other people in the world who had gone up in space at that point. So yeah, that was a little bit of a spy mission. It was of course rainy and they went through the back door and it, you know, it could be a great movie. Perhaps someone will make it. <laughs> I love the idea of that meeting, Katie. Yeah. There's so much about Sally Ride which surprises you and, and impresses you, but sometimes it's just her, it's her sense of history, I think. And the idea that a meeting like that would not only be something that would be enjoyable for her and stimulating intellectually, but actually quite significant. Yeah, that's right. She had a sense of her own, her own place in the timeline of history, perhaps evidenced by the fact that during the 1984 Challenger mission, which was her second mission, Ride carried a white silk scarf that had been worn by Amelia Earhart. Yes, Amelia Earhart, who was my hero growing up. Because, you know, in the when we were growing up in the 50s and 60s, there weren't a lot of female role models who broke the mold. And, you know, Amelia Earhart was one of them. And the fact that she disappeared on a flight around the world left that left her story open because <laughs> there were many theories about what happened to her. Did she land in the Howland Islands? Was she a spy for the U.S.? Because it was right before World War II. You know, the Japanese were were starting hostilities, um, you know, or did they just crash? And I actually got to interview Amelia Earhart's sister for something I wrote once. And I asked her what she thought had happened. And she said, I think they just crashed and died. Like she wasn't buying into any of the myths. But yes, so Amelia Earhart, the fact that she was important to Sally makes total sense. She clocks up 343 hours in space, Sue. Was she due to fly more missions? Yes, she was due to fly one more. You know, she was scheduled to fly another mission. And after the Challenger blew up in 86, the shuttle was put on hold. And so... Sally was actually named to the commission, the Rogers Commission, which investigated the disaster. She was the only astronaut, the only woman. It was grueling work. They did hundreds of interviews, hundreds of thousands of pages of testimony. And what happened was this little rubber O-ring shaped like an O had failed. And that one little, like something you find in your faucet, (laughs) um, it was probably a little bigger than that. It had failed. So it had failed to keep the fuel from the rockets contained and it exploded. And, you know, the, the astronauts were all killed, of course, and and four of them had been in her class of astronauts, so they were close friends, including Judith Resnick, who was one of the first women, and Krista McAuliffe, the teacher that all children around the country and probably the world were watching go up in space. And it, it was a horrible situation, but Sally, she dealt with her grief by doing the job of studying it, and it was really an important job and took a lot out of her. She she had actually planned to leave NASA after her third mission, but she stayed an extra year because she wanted to be there as people healed from this tragedy. And she had a new role where she was, she headed a commission to study the future of space uh, exploration. And she wanted NASA to look into 
having a flight to Mars and having more study of the moon and, and study of climate change. And, and she, it was a really important part of her legacy that she, she was able to step back from being in the middle of everything to looking at the overview. When does she reveal to the world her, her relationship with Tam? Does that ever come out or does she just live privately? It, Together. It came out in her obituary. <laughs> so That's extraordinary. Yeah, yeah that's an impressive it's, work. I mean, especially yeah. <laughs> now when you think no stone is left unturned in people's private lives. People are getting doxxed and revealed against their will. How did she keep it on the down low? Well, you know, people knew, uh, obviously, her ex-husband knew, um, her friends knew. But back then, you know, everything you did wasn't captured by a cell phone or on Twitter. uh, And she was able to just live her life. She also withdrew from public view, but she became a professor in California. Uh, As I said, she worked on this space.com website. She started her own organization. Uh, It was called Imaginary Line. Now it's called Sally Ride Science, and it focused on giving girls especially uh, an opportunity to study science and engineering. And they started space camps where they did different kinds of activities. They started a toy challenge where teams of kids would develop toys and you use engineering in that. So she really lived a quieter life. Tam, um, who I think was a bit more outgoing than, than Sally, felt upon her death that it was important that her sexuality be publicized. And it led the immediate reaction, as you could expect, (laughs) was surprise. And there were certain people who were very upset. I remember reading her Wikipedia bio at the time, and it kept changing because these different groups of people who were not happy about her sexuality would go in and change what was written. And then somebody would go back and say, you know, she was a gay icon. And other people would say, you know, no, this never happened. She was never, you know, out. And it made her the first out astronaut. She wasn't that during her lifetime, but she ultimately was. And she's been, you know, another kind of role model in that way. And during her lifetime, she did, though, impact the macho culture at NASA, don't you think? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, they they had to get with the times. It's interesting. In sports, it's been happening more and more. In baseball, women are coaching men's minor league teams now and managing even. It really was early on that that started happening in NASA because of Sally and the other first group of female astronauts. And they now know you don't need 100 tampons for a six-day trip. (laughs) Although, you know, it would have been a great uh, advertising uh, uh, activity for tampons. (laughs) Exactly. Like, you you know, so effective and efficient, you only need one for the entire mission. (laughs) So uh, as we were talking about Title IX going into effect and designating this expectation that women need to be given opportunities, it seems like one thing sort of got missed out in this understanding. There was this sense of like, oh, it's this like, we'll give an equal opportunity and we'll bequeath this chance to the little ladies. But what about the sense of hey, these women scientists, these high-achieving, competitive 
champions in their fields, didn't NASA think, hey, here's an opportunity to study women's reproductive systems in zero gravity, for instance, or, you know, those silly questions. It's like, hey, let's have a look at the other 50% of uh, humankind for scientific advancement. It seems a little short-sighted that we're only focusing on men's experience in space and also the fact that, you know, we're discounting that women can contribute. Right. Well, uh, one of the first six female astronauts was Anna Fisher, and she was a medical doctor. So when she when she went up, she did experiments about women and and space travel. So and it started. You know, it started slowly. First, there had to be a, a sea change in attitude from the old guard, and then the new guard started being the dominant factor. And I think people did become more open and and realize that you know women own space as much as men own space women are part of the story as much as men and i think that it just took a couple of decades to happen and it wouldn't happen without somebody being first and that was sally ride when she dies sue in 2012 of pancreatic cancer president obama posthumously awards her the presidential medal of freedom is her story widely known in America today? Is she a heroine for the modern day? You know, it's amazing how people forget or new generations of kids don't experience what the older people uh, experience. But I, I believe she is known. I mean, her, her company is still in existence. One of the things she started was this Earth Cam, which allows kids, middle middle school kids, to position cameras on the space shuttle or the uh, space station to take pictures of Earth. So she became she brought interactivity to the kids at home and made space so exciting. So I think she is more well known. You know, people have short memories these days. You know, I mean, Beyonce would be (laughs) probably be remembered for a long time. And then maybe forgotten a little bit in 25 years. So I think that Sally's name still rises above many others because of her achievements. Sue, thank you so much for telling us so much about a fascinating woman. Okay, it was great. And I love, I do love the name of your podcast and the song that that gave birth to it. Thank you, Sue. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hello everyone, my name is Tom Kearns and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go. Katie, be honest with me, when things go wrong on this podcast, do you weep? (laughs) Uh, When things go wrong on the podcast, I think (laughs) the thing is, now that we're 
in the middle of the era that in future will be known as the catastrophe of living your life in public. I think my idea is to very cynically just milk the emotion. You got to milk that emotion. So weeping, in other words, is not a drawback. It's a feature, not a bug. It's how you get ratings. <laughs> so if you feel if if you feel like a a temper tantrum is a brewing, or perhaps you'd like to shoot a few darts of sharp words in my direction, <laughs> I think the audience would love it. <laughs> And what were your thoughts on the remarkable Sally Ride, Katie? Well, she's too cool for me. She obviously thrives under the pressure. One thing that did strike me, though, was that she wasn't just all business. I remember seeing a little clip of her, I think it was on YouTube, and she's talking about how much fun it is. Like, once you do your job for the day, because you have a series of tasks, she said, oh, yeah, I got to admit that the other astronauts and I just play in zero gravity. So we do somersaults in the air and we <laughs> well, why wouldn't and, you? and we, you know, like throw our pens around and stuff. So she wasn't inured to the joy of just being silly in outer space. Well, if you would like another podcast to listen to, you should absolutely try our previous spacey episodes. The first of which John Glenn was with the legendary Kevin Fong, and then Katie there was Moonshot where if memory serves <laughs> we may even have discussed moon feces. Moon feces. Feces just sounds so, I don't know, is it like something that you sprinkle on the top of a, a fancy French dessert? <laughs> well, maybe the French do. If you'd like to get in touch with a story or a guest idea, you can contact us on email at fireatcrowdnetwork.co.uk or on social media. We're at Spread That Fire on Instagram and Twitter. And make sure you check out our merch collection at spreadthatfire.com. Katie, our next episode is about heavy metal suicide, which if people know anything about it, I should perhaps introduce a saying. I await with pert nipples inspired by intrigue. Crowd Network. A place where you belong. Hello, this is Gary Chachot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates, Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, 
to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II. Each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast.